the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, Paul is brought before the Jewish High Council, hoping once again to try and tell them about Jesus. And again, things don't go very smoothly. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 23, verse 1. The title of the message is, God is always good. Acts 23. You can also turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and Jeremiah 15. The whole theme of the book of Acts is that Jesus is still working. And even in the midst of the, the fact that Paul is in a very difficult situation, the Lord is still working. Remember, we saw that the Jews wanted to put Paul to death the confusion that arises as people accuse him of bringing Gentiles into the sanctuary. They rush him out of the temple and they plan on executing him themselves. But when the commander comes down to rescue Paul, it's not clear what the problem is. He assumes Paul's a a Gentile rabble rouser, but when he finds out that Paul's a Roman citizen, things become very delicate for him. And so he sets up this meeting where maybe it can be more reasonable, where there's not the crowds that are obviously angry at Paul, but he can get there with the Sanhedrin, the council, the religious leaders and political leaders of the nation, that he can bring Paul there and he can find out what is going on with this guy, why they're so upset at him. And so he brings him down here at the end of chapter 22 and sets him in front of the Sanhedrin on trial to figure out what in the world Paul's done so he can decide what he should do. Now, for Paul, this is a delicate situation as well, though, because you have to remember some of these people that he's standing before are former comrades. There's bound to be some who consider him the highest of traitors because he used to be a member of this group, a member of the Sanhedrin himself. They want him dead, these people. Even if they weren't the instigators of this riot, they still want him dead. And so the question is, can the truth come out in this kind of an environment? And where is God in the middle of it all? Well, as we look at chapter 23, let's see. So chapter 23, verse 1. Paul's there, standing before them. And it says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. And then said Paul unto him, God shall smite you, you whited wall. That's a little rough. For do you sit to judge me after the law and command me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I knew not, brethren, that he was the high priest. 
For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Paul here, as he stands before them, it says he's earnestly beholding them. And you have to realize, too, he spent the entire previous day incarcerated and probably a bit frustrated. You know, he had thought he had had his moment in chapter 22, the whole nation standing before him, and he's going to share the gospel with him. And it didn't turn out like he hoped. The crowd didn't relate to his testimony like he hoped. And instead of coming to their senses, they screamed for his execution. As such, I don't think Paul's exactly in the best of moods. And as he's there standing before all these hypocrites, he looks at them earnestly beholding. That's a really nice way to say he was staring them down. He's in there and he's looking at them and staring them down and he probably recognized some of them. And, and he knows that they know that he's innocent of bringing Gentiles in the temple area. He knows there's no business to even have a trial. And after staring him down, he says, he utters this confession. Nobody's gonna speak up on my behalf. I'll speak up on my behalf then. I've done nothing wrong, he says. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, the phrase there, have lived, it means to be a citizen of a commonwealth. Paul's not saying he never sinned. Paul's not saying he never did anything wrong. What Paul's saying here is that in regards to the charge that he's a renegade Jew, that he opposes the law, opposes his own people, he opposes the temple, that all the rumors swirling about him are untrue. I, I have never defiled this temple. He says, I have never done anything here that would be in opposition to my own people. He says, I have a clear conscience, a good conscience before God until this day. Upon hearing that, the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Ananias was appointed as high priest by Herod Agrippa II in 48 AD. And he served in that position for 12 years. He had a reputation for being a, a vengeful tyrant. Interestingly enough, later on, he collaborated with the Romans against his own people, so his own people killed him. So as we're standing here and they're accusing Paul of being a bad Jew, this is a guy who eventually is a traitor to his own people and killed by his own people when they rebelled against Rome in 66 AD. Now, Paul rose to prominence as a Christian leader right about the same time this guy became the high priest. And so he appears to bear Paul's special animosity, and he orders him slapped for his declaration of innocence. Not punched, but slapped with an open hand. And Now, that was an illegal act against someone on trial. You couldn't just slap him. It's kind of like in our court system. You can't just do that. You can't just do that in their court system either. But it was a highly offensive thing for one Jew to open hand slap another Jew. Paul didn't take it very well. <laughs> and then said Paul unto him, God shall smite you. And, and again, the idea here is that God's offended by your behavior. There's something highly offensive going on here. What you've done is, is so offensive that God would slap you, you whited wall. <laughs> For you sit to judge me after the law and command me to be smitten contrary to the law. The phrase whited wall is the same word that Jesus used when he called the religious leaders whitewashed tombs, remember? He said, you paint it all nice on the outside, but on the inside it's full of dead bones. It was a euphemism for hypocrisy. And Paul explains, he says, you know, you're gonna you know, break the law to slap me and then judge me by the law? You're a hypocrite. Now, Paul was correct in his accusation, but not very tactful or nice. We can understand the angry response given that he's done nothing wrong. But when Jesus appeared before the same group of people and he was wrongfully accused, did he respond that way? Did he insult the high priest? Look over at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. For even hereunto were you called, 
because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Listen, if anybody had a right to be upset at being wrongfully accused, who would it be? Jesus, right? I mean, I always think to myself, you know, if, I, if Bev gives me a hard time about something or somebody else gives me a hard time about something, I think, yeah, I probably messed up somewhere. I, I probably didn't say something right or I probably didn't handle the situation correctly. Maybe there was an edge to my tone. I probably deserve what I'm getting. But Jesus, did he ever deserve any type of treatment like that? He had never done anything wrong. Who, verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile back. The word there means to insult. When he was insulted, he did not insult back. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did Paul just do? <laughs> he threatened. But rather, he committed himself to him that judges righteously. That is the example that is set for us. Yes, Paul is innocent. But fighting back with harsh words isn't going to shame them into changing their tune. I think sometimes, you know, how dare you say the things like that to me, you dirty, rotten, whatever. And we think they're going to go, you're right, I am a dirty, rotten, whatever. And they'll change their tune. But no, what usually happens? They just get more angry. Sometimes I will see articles that are running through the cybersphere and you see the comments down below. And so, you know, got the Christians, you know, rally to the, the aid of whatever the good cause is. And then you have, you know, other people who are being critical of it. But, but what fascinates me is in the tone, there's not a single difference between the two groups. Not a single difference. There are insults flying from both sides. And I don't see that in Jesus at all. There's a dignity to Jesus in the midst of his illegal treatment. Luke 22, verses 66 through 71, when Jesus is on trial, I just want to read it to you and let it sink in. It says, and as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him, that's Jesus, into their council. That's the Sanhedrin saying, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Tell us. Jesus said unto them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me nor let me go. I know what's going on here. I understand. And hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, are you then the Son of God? And he said unto them, you say rightly that I am. And they said, what need we have any further witness for we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. There's a dignity to Jesus there. He speaks both with love to them, where he, he tells them, he, he's reasoning with them in a calm way where he says, listen, if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. He tells them the truth. Are you the Messiah? If I tell you I am, you're not going to believe me. And, and if I ask you some questions, he says, you're not going to give me any answers. Remember he asked him the question about John the Baptist? Tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the answer to that if you tell me whether John's ministry was from God or not. And what did they say? Oh, we cannot give you an answer. Because they knew they were busted. And so Jesus says, if I ask you questions, you're not going to answer me truthfully either. And you know what? In the end, you're not going to let me go. So after this is all done, you're going to see me on the right hand of the power of God. He entrusted himself to the one who was going to take care of him after what they were going to do. Just like it says in 1 Peter 2. You know, Jesus' behavior at this trial convicted many of these people after he died and rose again and led to their salvation. And Paul, 
We can understand why. I don't think I'd have done much better either. But he displays none of that dignity here by resorting to name-calling, and it reflects very poorly on him. In verse 4, they that stood by in Acts 23, they said, do you insult or slander God's high priest? That's the exact opposite of what the Lord commanded us to do. And Paul realizes his wrongdoing immediately, and he apologizes. Verse 5, then said Paul, I knew not, brothers, that he was the high priest. That phrase there, the way it's worded in the original language, it means he didn't realize it until just now. Perhaps he was so angry at the command to smite him that he didn't notice the man who gave it was wearing the high priest's robes and sitting in that official seat. Whatever the reason, though, it was wrong, and he confesses his fault in doing so, for he says, it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Listen, that's the best apology you can ever give is when you come to somebody and you say, listen, I was wrong. The Bible says I'm supposed to do this and I didn't do it. Or the Bible says I'm not supposed to do this and I did it. Will you please forgive me? It's really hard not to forgive somebody when they come at you like that. When you are so honest before them and just to say, this is what God, the standard, that's what confession is, right? It's to say the same thing that God says about it, right? God says, this is wrong. I don't want you to do it. When we come and we say, I know it's wrong. I shouldn't have done it. Will you please forgive me? That's humility. Paul humbles himself and he quotes Exodus twenty two twenty eight here and saying you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we may not like some of the leaders that we have. Maybe you do, but I'm just saying if you don't, that doesn't give us a right to insult them. It doesn't give us a right to make nasty memes about them and put them on social media. We could speak the truth in love like Jesus did and still maintain the dignity of what it means to be different than everybody else. Now, at this point, any righteous leverage Paul did have is gone. And he looks very bad in front of the Roman commander now. He's in trouble and he knows it. And this is why I really think God didn't want Paul to go to Jerusalem. God, <laughs> he knows everything, right? He, he knows us through and through. He knows us inside and out. And while Paul felt perfectly suited to reach his own nation, God knew he was not the perfect person. That Paul's trust in himself would put him in situations he would not handle well. That he would take this personally. And this is why we can never resort to the mindset of, well, it must be God's will for me to do this thing because I'm the perfect man or woman for the task. How many times have we kind of thought to ourselves, well, you know, I'd be better for that. You know, my background is in this and I've had experience in this. I have found that God just doesn't work that way. More often than not, I have found that God puts us in situations that don't seem to fit from a rational perspective. Pastor Chuck, when he would share about the whole hippie revival and the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s, he said, I take no credit for this. He said, this was all my wife. He said, we go down to the beach and I would see these guys with, you know, they, they hadn't taken a bath in how long and, they, you know, they hadn't washed their car and whatever and they weren't wearing shoes. And I think to myself, get a haircut, take a bath and get a job. He said, but my wife would weep. My wife would weep for their lost souls. And it changed me. It didn't make sense to have a guy like Chuck Smith reach counterculture hippies. Just like it wouldn't make sense to have an uneducated fisherman in Peter be the perfect guy to reach the educated Jewish people rather than Paul, the scholar and former Pharisee. It doesn't make practical sense to us, but that's what God does. And you know what's really cool about that? It means that you and I can never discount God's call on our lives because it doesn't fit our skill set. Do you know that? We can never discount God's call upon our lives because it doesn't fit our skill set. 
I'm going to share tonight a little bit about some of the things in my life, and, and none of it matches up. What do you do for a living, Will? Well, I speak publicly. I was the kid in high school that never, ever wanted to do that. I was the kid in high school that when it was my turn to speak in English class, and I would tell my mom, I'm not feeling well, mom, <laughs> you know? And then she would call to school and tell her, my son's not coming. I mean, 15-year-old, young, young, you know, going to be a man soon, you know? And, you know, I don't want to speak in front of people. And I, I always chuckle, here I do this. But it also reminds us that we should never insert ourselves into a spiritual task because we perceive we're better than others that we would be able to accomplish it much better than someone else would do it. In the church so often, why did they choose that person to lead that ministry? Why did they choose that person to do that thing? I'm much more qualified. I'd be much better than them. You know, I'm much more mature than them. I'm a much better dad than them. Much better, you know, whatever. And the truth is, is that God just, he calls who he calls. He calls who he calls. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 7, verses that have always meant very much to me, it says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Isn't that what we want? We don't want people to come and go, look how smart they are, or how talented they are, how gifted they are, or how anointed they are. We want people to walk away and go, do you see how cool Jesus was today? We want people to walk away and go, Jesus was here today. I met Jesus today. And if we're not doing that, then we are wasting time. So don't ever discount God's call in your life because you don't have a skill set, but don't ever become proud because of the giftings God gives you. Well, Paul is in a bad spot now. You know, the implication here of verse six, it says, but when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and Pharisees, that word perceived, the implication of that word is that his mind is racing. He's trying to figure out how to recover this blunder because he's technically incriminated himself on trial. Now he has broken God's law, right? He has, he's insulted the ruler. And as a result, now he is guilty no matter how he shakes it out. They could remain silent the entire time. And while the commander doesn't necessarily have to let them put him to death, he could turn them over to him for judgment. And so Paul, as he's looking around, racing, trying to figure a way out of this, he realizes that half of the group is Sadducees and the other half is Pharisees. And you say, well, shouldn't he already know that? He used to be a member of the Sanhedrin. I want to give you a whole history lesson, but things are starting to change in Israel. When Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin as a Pharisee, he was in the minority. The Pharisees were the more conservative group. They held to the scriptures more tightly. They were much more focused on the religious aspect of their country than the political aspect. And during that time, they were in the minority. But as things have been going on lately and Rome has been exercising more power and the Sadducees have been more in cahoots with Rome, the Pharisees have taken a greater seat in the Sanhedrin. Eventually, they're going to become the majority and they're going to rebel against Rome. So when he realizes, man, this, I'm looking around, he's seeing the different garb and the different people he knows. He realizes, you know what? It's split halfway down the middle. And he thinks to himself, I could turn this into a religious debate that would put some of them in his favor and give the commander a reason to dismiss any charges. And so he begins, he cries out in the midst of the council. He says, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee of the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am called in question. That's why I'm on trial. <laughs> you know, 
I've heard Paul praise for his wit in this tactful response that it wasn't dishonesty because, well, he used to be a Pharisee and the resurrection of Jesus is what he believed in. And, and that belief was really why he's on trial here. And that's really why they want him dead. But at the very least, it's manipulative. <laughs> at the very least. Jesus' reaction to the council's accusations is so different. He doesn't try to pit them one against the other. He doesn't try to get out of it. He's full of grace and truth. And you know, Paul identifying as a Pharisee here is not even being honest about his own faith at this point. Because later in prison, Paul will say this about his past. In Philippians 3, verses 4 through 8, he will talk about his past and he uses this language. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. He says, I'm circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church, and touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yeah, and I doubt, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Title of Pharisee, he considered it garbage. So why is he using it here? Paul had left his Phariseeism behind when he came to Christ, but here he resurrects the possibility that he's not a traitor. I'm just one of you guys. And could you imagine a more precious prize for the Pharisees than winning back Paul, the traitor? And so immediately it says in verse seven, when he had so said, there arose a dissension. The word there means a heated quarrel between the Pharisees and the Sadducees so that the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. Neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees confess both that there is a resurrection and there are angels and spirits. And so there arose a great cry, a shouting match started to take place. And the scribes, these are the real legal guys, the guys who knew the Bible really well, that were of the Pharisees' part, they arose and they began to vigorously protest. They strove saying, we find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. <laughs> Mission accomplished, Paul. If half the council states he's innocent, then the commander must realize this is just one of these guys' dumb debates again and let Paul go. There's a problem with that, though, because the rest of the Sanhedrin still wants to kill Paul, badly enough that they do it right in front of the commander anyway. And so verse 10 says, when there arose a great dissension, that's a different word, and it means a riot. A riot starts to break out again. Paul, just wherever he goes, riots break out. It says, when that happened, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle, the Antonia fortress again. So rather than securing Paul's freedom, Paul's scheming put his life in danger yet again. And you know, this is why human scheming never works, even if it appears to work at first. You ever had that happen? You know, you lie, you bend the truth, you manipulate a little bit and you go, ha, oh, it worked. But then guess what? It's like, a, it's like a little spider trail, right? You kind of got to follow it wherever it goes to make sure that you don't get found out, to make sure that all the pieces still stay in place so that the facade is there. See, our scheming is based on limited information. 
We can plot and plan as best as we possibly can, but we don't know nor can we control the future actions of others. God, on the other hand, has all information. And it's based on that unlimited information, which includes knowledge of the future that God gives us the principles in his word to live by. Whenever we come to a difficult issue in life, we know we can go to the Lord about it. Why? Because he's not limited in information. You know, last night we were having a conversation. We had a conversation about hell with my kids. And anytime you talk about the topic of hell, it's difficult, right? I've heard many people tell me and say, well, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And there's a part of me that wants to kind of go, who made you God (laughs) that you can do that? That you could determine what the crime should be? that you are adequate and able, that you have all knowledge and you can actually describe and say what the proper punishment should be for the crime? There's a part of us, though, that feels that way, that we know best. And so in dealing with my kids, they were saying, well, it doesn't seem right, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And, and we were explaining to them, you know, about how, do you know everything? No, well, God knows everything. And so we trust him. that in that perfect and full knowledge, coupled with his perfect character, that God is just, never makes a mistake. See, God gives us the principles we have in his word, the truths we have in his word, because he is not limited in knowledge. And so that's why the Bible says, trust him with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Obedience is so much better than any plan we can come up with. And so Paul ends up in the same spot he was before the trial. He's back in Roman custody with a bloodthirsty crowd screaming for his death. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.